When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a special edition of New Books Network in which we talk about talk with previous winners of the Coleman Prize. Naming the honor of British business historian with Donald Coleman, 1920-1995, this prize is awarded annually by the Association of Business Historians to recognize excellence in new research in Britain. It is open to PhD dissertations in business history, broadly defined, either having a British subject or completed at a British university. All dissertations are completed in the previous year of the prize are eligible. Today we have Akram Benjamin, a recipient of the Coleman Prize in 2020, with his dissertation entitled Cotton, Finance and Business Networks in a Globalized World, the case of Egypt during the first half of the 20th century, awarded by Henley Business School, University of Reading. And I will add a link to the dissertation in the in the notes. Akram, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Bernardo, so much for having me in one of the, the, these episodes. This is really an interesting stuff. So thank you for, very much for the initiative. And uh, yeah, I'm, um, I'm eager to have this conversation. Thank you. Well, let's start, Akram, with a little bit, if you tell uh, the listener a little bit about your background and how you became an academic because you come from a uh, practitioner. Uh, background, uh, banker and CFA. So uh, uh, please tell us a little bit about that and how you ended up uh, uh, with this research. Yes, yeah, so basically my journey to become an academic has not been an easy one, I must confess. I did my undergrad in banking and this was back in Egypt, my home country. And straight away after completing my undergrad, I went to the banking industry in the country, but the moment I was finishing my undergrad, I, I actually started to become interested in 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 how you answer puzzling research questions. How to how, how when you have some questions and then you try to answer these questions in a scientific way. So basically, I had the plan or the goal to earn a master's degree and then a PhD, but it wasn't that easy. So 
I had to work for around nine years in the banking industry until I could get a master's degree. And uh, for some reasons, I couldn't afford to do a master's degree on my own. So I was waiting for a scholarship. And then I got a scholarship in 2011 from the World Bank. Uh, this was a program for uh, young professionals from developing countries who, ha who have some potentials to help the countries. So I came to the UK and I studied for one year at University of Reading for the master's degree in development finance. Uh, so I was trying to combine my background in finance with how finance can work for development. And uh, I came across some papers and books while I was doing my master's degree on economic and business history. And at that point, I started to become interested in the long-term view of everything we we, we are doing. So uh, I was quite interested. I started to become interested in, in, in business history. Then after my master's degree, I had to wait for four years until I, I um, um, until getting accepted in one of the PhD program. And finally, I got a, a PhD with a scholarship, a generous scholarship. This was from Henley Business School. So I started in 2016. And uh, when I started my PhD and I told them, look, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm going to write a, a business history piece. I was warned uh, that this was, this was going to take many years and my funding was just for three years. Uh, and then my supervisors are two of the, of the very good names in the business history domain, Mark Hassan and Lucy Newton. So I was thinking the work will be associated with the names, will be associated with my work. So I have to produce something good. And then I, I said, okay, I have only three years. So I was quite determined to finish my PhD thesis within the time period, but without compromising quality. And uh, it wasn't an easy journey. When I started, you know, reading this lit this classical literature on business history, I felt this field is quite uh, dominated by what is it's quite a wide field, if you like. You know, it's 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 mostly dominated by studies on Northern America and uh, and uh, and Europe. You know, with we start starting with. Chandler's, you know, strategies and these kind of things. But I and the other and the other point that I I I noticed, you know, I I was quite eager to write something on developing countries and more specifically in Egypt and the Middle East. And as far as you know, you know, history writing in these countries has been almost under the shadow of imperial paradigm, dependency theories, and these kind of big themes. So I thought, why not I write a business history account and just a pure business. And then when I said that to many people, they said, okay, what do you mean by business history account? Because yes, of course, you cannot isolate, you know, these firms and entrepreneurs from the larger political context, you know, but I, I just thought why I, I do not use some, some, some established theory from the board, from business disciplines, you know, rather than writing a political theory. So this was my starting point. And, uh, Egypt was quite an interesting case study because the uh, the country was very well integrated into the world economy in, during the first wave of globalization. It used to export cotton, import foreign capital, and additionally, it hosted a large number of foreign uh, uh, communities from different nationalities. So these were the three main themes, you know, I focused on on uh, uh, in my PhD thesis. So uh, 
Eckert cotton commodities, you know, one demon commodity and the other one on a case study on one of the branch overseas banks that served in the country at that time. So this is a cor this corresponds to importing foreign capital. And then for my third theme, I looked at the interlocking directorates of Egyptian joint stock companies. Um, and the majority of these directors used to be local foreigners living in the country. So these were the three main themes I looked at. And uh, then after my uh, PhD, unfortunately, COVID came and I had to leave the UK back to Egypt. And uh, the only thing I could do at that moment is to go back to banking, you know, although I wasn't quite happy with this point, but end of the day, you know, I had to do something. Until, you know, this opportunity came at Oxford and they joined last year, earlier this year at Oxford, you know, and this is how it came. So my, my career trajectory is not that straightforward, <laughs> if you like, but... Uh, but I but I enjoyed every moment of it, whether it was in the in the industry or now in academia, and that's it. Thank you very much for that. And what did winning the Coleman Prize mean for you personally and professionally? It meant a lot because I was quite skeptical when I started my PhD. Am I able to produce a good work? You know, because end of the day, you have to come with a good narrative. You have to come with a good story. And uh, I wasn't trained to be a historian in my undergrad, and I'm not a native English speaker, so I I wasn't I wasn't quite sure whether I um, I'd be able to 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 come up with with a good thesis, you know. And uh, almost I spent that three years of doing my PhD quite skeptical about the quality of my work. Does it add value to anything, you know, or not? So the moment I I knew that I. Well, uh, that I won the prize, this was a, a, a very special moment to me, honestly, you know, because this was quite a proof that I was going in the right direction. So it meant a lot on the personal level. On the professional levels, on the professional level, I think it opened some avenues for me because in the business and the economic history domain, when I used to introduce myself to other academics and then I, I, I say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a previous winner of the Goldman Prize, you know, so at this point, the conversations start to take a different, you know, different perspective. Okay, this guy, yes, he's a pure business, he's a typical business historian. So let's let's talk seriously now. So yeah, it meant a lot to me on both levels. Excellent. And so you think that it had open opportunities to network with senior scholars or expose your work to others that would not have otherwise been possible. Of course, I do. yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And uh, I know this wasn't part of the Coleman Prize, but actually the year before I read, before completing my PhD, I participated in the doctoral colloquium, you know, by, you know, by AVH, and this was very useful. I started to do some networking, you know, and it was extremely useful to me. But then when I won the prize, you know, this opened further avenues to me. So yes, I absolutely agree. Well, it was very useful to, you know, to open networking opportunities to me. Um, well, you, as you said, you, you, you finished and this was in the middle of COVID. Uh, did you have a chance to organize a competition the following year? Because there was a gap in, in, in competitions and, and I think it was in your turn that Yes. Yeah, and unfortunately, but... no, unfortunately, no. I'm uh, probably both 
was there a, a, a conference in 2021? I'm not, I, I can't remember. It was the one that, the one that was cancelled, I think. Yeah, it was cancelled. That was the reason. Yeah, yeah, and then for the 2022 one, for some visa issues, unfortunately, I was in Egypt at that time, so I couldn't I couldn't travel to the UK. So I wasn't there for the 2022 competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and you decided to publish your work as journal articles rather than uh, a book. What What was your thinking behind that that strategy, and what would be your advice to, you know? Uh, people who are coming up or approaching the end of their studies and, and thinking what are they going to do um, with with their work and how best to find an outlet. Yeah, I think I think we need to think strategically about our research outputs, whether we should go to the book road, whether to go for general articles. But in my case, I spoke to many uh, academics that I do respect, such as my PhD supervisors, along with other, you know, senior academics. And uh, we kind of came to the conclusion that uh, publishing the work, my work in a book might not be the best option, given it's it's very special focus on one country, you know, and uh, not everyone is interested in the Middle East and in Egypt. So, uh, and probably I might have some issues with publishers trying to find a good publisher to my work. So we we thought that probably the the, the, the better scenario is to go for journal articles, or especially that I had three different themes in my PhD thesis. Yes, it, we connect together end of the day, but it, it's it's easy to break them uh, down to, to to several themes and several articles. So I took this decision to, to go for that journal article. But just my advice to people who are or will be in, in the same place you know, in, in the future is to think strategically and consult you know, some senior academics because this is very important, especially when you start your journey. You do not understand the, 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 the system very well. you know. So you have to consult and try to understand what's going on and until you you come to the idea of where to go with with with, with your output, with your research output. You you've given us. Let, let's move on and, and talk about your your dissertation. You've given us a little bit of a feel of, of what you were trying to do, and you've talked a little bit about those three themes. But I don't know if you would want to give us a um, a more detailed picture, with although with a big canvas of of. You know what was the main research hypothesis that brought these themes together, and then how those themes relate to that hypothesis or research yeah. question. Yeah. Okay. So basically, my some I covered the period from the late nineteenth century until nineteen fifties, because in nineteen fifties, as as far as you know, you know there was a military coup at that time, and then foreign assets, all foreign assets, were sequestrated by Colonel Nasser at that time. So this month, the end of the of this era of, of, of foreigners, foreign entrepreneurs, and, and foreign firms in the country. So in the three chapters, in the three main chapters of the thesis, in the first chapter, I looked at the cotton commodity market. This was quite a sophisticated market because it started in the Egyptian villages and ended in 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 in, in Liverpool, you know, and, and, and Manchester. So how how this network 
interacted, how the actors in the network interacted with each other. We had some, you know, farmers in the Egyptian villages, and then we have these export and import firms in Liverpool and Manchester. And I focused on export to the UK because this, it was the largest importer of Egyptian cotton at the time. So, and I, I borrowed theories from from economics. So basically, I used theories of coordination and information economics information economics, if you like. I use the work of Frederick Hayek and George Richards, Richardson, um, both were concerned with what they perceived as the fundamental economic problem, which is the coordination of economic activities. And uh, in this case, I viewed the, the, the system, the cotton system, as a system that encompasses flows from of information rather. I didn't focus on the flow of cotton itself, but the flow of information because farmers in the Egyptian villages um, had to acquire information about what is required, what 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 is what is the most in demand, you know, in, in, in England for the cotton. And then and then the firms in, in, in and then the export and import firms in Britain and foreign banks operating in Egypt that used to finance the cotton cultivation had to to remain informed about what's going on during this season, for example, about the cotton quality, about the cotton quantity. So basically, I mapped the network of actors as 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 flow of information through the network rather than the flow of cotton itself. So this was quite, I wouldn't say novel perspective, but this was a perspective that hasn't been studied before, you know, how to coordinate works. And uh, the main conclusion from this chapter is that foreign banks were the main actors that coordinated information and even coordinated the, 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 the flow of cotton because they had their presence in, in Egypt and they had their offices in um, headquarters in London and they had their offices as well in Liverpool and Manchester. So foreign banks were the most important actors to coordinate these networks. And from this point, I went to the second chapter and I, take a, I took a case study of one of the largest British overseas banks that operated in the country. And uh, this theme, as I said earlier, corresponds to the, to the idea of importing foreign capital. So I, I provided in, at the institutional level a detailed uh, account of what happened in cyberbank, the day-to-day -day, day -day activities, you know, how they managed risks. I didn't talk about politics or these kind of things. I just, you know, um, I just used principal agent theory. Um, I used some theories from IB, uh, liability of foreigners, uh, and and, uh, and uh, internalization theory to understand why these banks came to the country in the first place. So, th so this was a typical case study of the activities of one of these banks. And I argued that this is a representative case study because almost every bank in the country acted and, uh, in the same way. They, they used to do the same business. They used to have the same business model. So it was, um, I argued that it's quite a, a, a representative case study. This was for the second theme. Then for the third theme, I was uh, I was quite interested in for, um, firms and entrepreneurs. And uh, as I said, the country used to large host a large a large foreign uh, community from many origins: British, French, Jewish, Greek, Belgian. So I manually constructed a data set for the companies listed in the Egyptian Stock Exchange for three turning points. You know, the in, in Egypt modern history. And then I use social network analysis to try to understand why this network was formed. 
Because if you look at the of the of the literature on corporate networks in 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 in, in Europe and Northern American countries, you find that finance was the major point behind the, the the structure of the network. So banks used to be at the middle of the network because they they had to 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 observe the investments in other companies, you know, and uh, so banks were the most central actors in the network according to social network analysis. But in my case, banks were not that important. So basically, I argued that the the function and the structure of the network was mainly for maintaining coordination between various directors and various companies. Because these guys came from different backgrounds, different countries. There was no homogeneous business culture at that time. So basically, the structure of the network was for maintaining coordination. And I, I provided the evidence for that because most of the central firms in the network used to be companies that were established by many business groups from different nationalities. So, for example, Jewish and 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 the Greek business groups. Uh, in the past, they they hadn't uh, coordinated with each other, but when when their businesses started to grow in the country, they had to establish some joint companies just to maintain. Uh, to maintain coordination and preserve collective interest. And I argued that these entrepreneurs and the capital they imported from abroad, because they used to import capital from their home countries, was very important for the for the for the for the dynamic sector for the for the dynamics of the of, of the education economy at that time. So this was basically my underused theories of entrepreneurship. So and so predominantly, I used business and economic theories. I didn't talk about politics at all. And uh, one of the drawbacks of my thesis, actually, is that I used uh, cosmopolitan evidence. Unfortunately, I couldn't find, you know, and, and you, probably you are familiar with this problem, you know, when, when you do archival research of developing countries, probably there is an issue with finding sources. So I ended up relying on sources from London most, mostly. So it, um, I told the story from a cosmopolitan perspective. I wish I could tell the, 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 the other story from the indigenous perspective, but unfortunately, given the lack of lack of sources, I couldn't do that. And uh, just to give you one example, actually, in Egypt, we we have one of the oldest art, national archives in the world. It was established in 1830s, I think, you know, but for some security reasons, I couldn't access this place, although they had treasures in this place. But for some reasons, my application to access the archive was denied, given that uh, I'm, I was working in a foreign university, although I'm Egyptian in the day. So this was quite disappointing. So that's why I had to rely on sources from London. So um, I believe that if if I had consulted some Egyptian sources, my thesis would have been much better. But this is what I could achieve at this point. Yeah, but you've done well with the dissertation, nonetheless. Let me let me bring the the two last questions together a little bit because it's the third theme, the third theme in your dissertation yeah. that ends up. As a as a as a very interesting um, journal article, yeah. Um, how 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 was this? Because um, uh, you also have co-authored the article with other people that were not your the dissertation supervisors. 
So I think that's why I think that I'm bringing these two questions together. Um, I guess there was some personal negotiation on, on this, as well as moving what was a chapter in the dissertation to the level of a, of a journal article. How, and the problem, as you have pointed out, which is uh, being able to tell a story without documental archives, you know, a business story when you have very little documental archives. So so how did this thing come, come together in your case? Yeah, so the, the final product of this journal article is much more improved version compared to the chapter that appeared in my PhD thesis. And uh, again, this is one of the things that came with Coleman Prize because, you know, <laughs> I had the opportunity to network with some very good scholars such as John Wensing. And uh, we had this discussion about this chapter specifically. I asked him about certain questions because he used to do some some similar works on the corporate networks in, in, in Great Britain and during the 20th century. He had a couple of articles on that with with uh, with Anna Talba and uh, uh, Emily, Emily Bushnia. Yeah, mm -hmm. Emily Bushnia. So from this point, actually, he, he, he started to show some interest in my work and uh, and the, my project attracted him and attracted Naveen Abdelhim as well from Newcastle University Business School. And uh, I said, okay, this this was the, my, the initial version I did for my PhD thesis, but let's take it from here and develop it further. So yes, it was, uh, you know, we, 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 we exerted much more efforts to come up with the final product of the article. And then one of the problems that you highlighted is the lack of, of, of corporate archives. So basically, you need to tell us, you have to be innovative end of the day. So rather than just meaning that there were no archive and records, you know, of these companies listed in Egypt, we said, okay, let's rely on the stock exchange yearbook of the, of the, of the, of the, of the country because this used to be a, a, an annual publication. Enlisting all companies and their directors in, in, in listed in the Egyptian stock exchange, and uh, we used this data set, and then we complement the analysis with a large range of sec secondary sources. And uh, I believe we managed to tell a good story, even in the absence of corporate archives, as long as as long as your sources are usable. And as long as your analysis is plausible and uh, in line uh, has some has some and has some um, and, um, does match what has been written before. I do not mean that you have to agree with what the literature has said, but at least it has some grounds on on what has been written before. So eventually, you could do that. So this is what one of the one of the pieces of advice I would give as well to 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 future researchers in business history. Do not just sit down and complain that I cannot find any archival material. You know, you have to be innovative in, in the sources you are using. So I think this is one of the things that I learned during my PhD and uh, while I was writing this article as well. Yeah, and uh, and at the same time there are things that are left out. So what sort of interesting doggets of information or of knowledge did not make the any of the drafts or where you know are sitting there that if you had had space you would have included in 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 your work in the paper or the phd thesis itself um is there stuff that was left out of the phd that you were able to include in the paper or vice versa 
Yeah, so basically, uh, I wish I could have written something on the activities of other foreign banks in the countries because I used the case study of the rich overseas banks, but I wish I could have written something on, on French and Italian banks because they were very active in the country at that time. I, you know, I was just hoping to make some comparison between the business model compared to the rich banks because as far as you know, rich banks are very well known for being conservative, risk averse, and these kind of things. So I was just thinking uh, it, it would be nice to compare that to Italian banks, especially that uh, the secondary literature suggests that Italian banks were, were much risk seekers at that point of time. So, But unfortunately, there was no space or no time for doing that. Right. Um so what is, what is your current uh, project at, at the moment? So basically, at the moment, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at uh, Faculty of History, Oxford University, and uh, I'm working on an ERC-funded project in global correspondent banking. It's quite a large project on the history of correspondent banking across the 20th century. And uh, my part of the project, I'm focusing on the relationship between correspondent banking and the uh, financial crises. So... Um, if we if we speak intuitively, um, you would expect that the that there should be a network effect. So when the network between banks were dense, so if if a problem happened, this would impact other banks in the network. So I'm trying to establish this relationship and whether these correspondent banking relationships um, help to fuel these crises or help to 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 provide some. Uh, 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 some persistence to the to the to the to the metrics themselves. So these are the, the this is the projects I'm working on at the moment, and I'm focusing on four banking crises mainly, starting with the transatlantic uh, crisis of 1907 and ending with the 1982 uh, uh, surrendered crisis in, 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 in South America. Well, we hope that uh, you have some outputs from this uh, late project uh, soon, so we can have you again at New Books Network. Akram, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Nadu. That was such a great opportunity. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, thank you to our listeners for being with us uh, today. If you are a subscriber, if you are a subscriber, please rank us or, or leave a comment. That is always helpful. And if you are not a subscriber, then do subscribe to our podcast series. And this is all from us today. Thank you very much.